Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. Hi, I'm Ando. Really nice to meet you, if I haven't met you already. Um, It's a real privilege and an honour to be here talking with you now. I have not spoken in the evening community for about, I think it's about a year or something like that, so I'm a little bit jittery and nervous, but I think that's just from the wonderful responsibility that it is to actually come up the front and try to speak into your lives. So thank you for the opportunity and thank you for being here particularly as well. Um, Now, Sunday school. Why I didn't answer the actual question that Laura was asking. I find the concept of Sunday school a really, really weird concept because honestly, growing up, I had no idea what it actually was. Um, I remember living in Forestville and I I was in the kitchen. I had to fill out a form for school or something like that. And there was this point of like religion, dot, dot. And I turned to my mum and I asked, Mum, what religion am I? She goes, you're Anglican, dear. And I was like, oh. And I took the pen and I wrote down Anglican. And then the weirdest thing, my hand started shaking and I felt the power of the Holy Spirit at work. No, definitely not. That is, that is not how I came to know God at, in any way, shape or form. But basically, my first encounter with kind of God really came when I started going to youth group in about year 10. Um, a friend of mine at the time invited me along to youth group on a Friday night and there was this girl that I had the hots for. So I was like, yeah, all right, I'll go to youth group. She's there. And so I went for the women and I stayed for Jesus. And <laughs> genuinely, that's how I came to go to church. So I started going on a Friday night and then I continued on Sundays. But I went on Sunday evenings because um, I was like young and you go to the evening service when you're a little bit younger. And basically they didn't have a kids church there at all so I had no idea what Sunday school was so basically this whole introduction is saying why am I doing the final one in this series on Sunday school because I've literally never been to Sunday school but in a way that's great because I don't have any preconceived notions of what it is I should actually technically be meant to say if I had been to Sunday school Do you get what I'm saying here? Like, I don't have that preconceived notion of what I should be saying. So, really, I get to go in just with what I've learned and what I think God's wanting to be bringing tonight. So, tonight, once we have the technical stuff going, which I'm sure will be sorted out soon, um, tonight we're looking at Daniel. We're looking at the book of Daniel. We're looking at the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Um, Particularly... So the book of Daniel, if you don't actually know, it's a book within the Old Testament, Old Testament being the first fat part of the Bible that talks about God and the people of God prior to when Jesus came down on earth. Daniel's a book in there, okay? Chapter 6 is the part with Daniel in the lion's den, and that's what we're going to be looking at. So because you may not have read the book of Daniel, you may not know what it talks about at all, I'm going to give you a really quick, hopefully, summary overview of what it's actually about, so that you get an idea of the broader context to figure out, so why lions? And then we'll go from there. So the book of Daniel, it is part prophetic, it is part historical narrative, and it is part apocalyptic literature. Those are really big words. But basically, what does that mean? It means that some of it is situated in the historical landscape. So it occurs in real time and in real space. 
And quick hint, that's the 6th century BC in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. 6th century equals 500 BC. Now, so, some of it happens in real time, real space, but then other elements of the book of Daniel are really highly symbolic, and they speak to the end of this present evil age, and they speak of this, like, future reality, where the kingdoms or the powers of this time will be torn down and replaced by God's kingdom. So, it particularly follows Daniel and a couple of his friends, but mostly Daniel. That's why the book's called Daniel. And they are Jewish exiles who have been... Well, Jerusalem gets conquered by the Babylonians and they get taken away to Babylon, right? And they first have to serve this bad guy called Nebuchadnezzar, who I think wins the award for the coolest biblical name. So he is the king of Babylon, real historical figure, okay? Like he existed. They have to serve Babylon and... Well, I have to serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. But then Babylon actually gets taken over by another real power that exists, the Persian Empire, and then they have to serve a guy called Darius the Mede. Okay? So you've got first Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, then Darius the Mede, Persia. Make those connections, because we'll be coming back to that. Now, they serve in the royal palace, they t- interpret dreams and omens, and eventually Daniel becomes crazy important within the government structure of the Persian Empire, which is pretty cool. Um, during this time, he also gets thrown into a furnace with his friends because he decides to not worship an idol that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Um, the Son of God protects him, and he also gets thrown into a lion's den because he won't stop praying to his God. Again, he's saved. Spoiler alert. Sorry, that was a bit late. But it's a pretty rocky ride for Daniel. Great success, great hardship and challenges that come within his experiences there. So the book of Daniel actually finishes with a series of prophecies and visions from chapter 7 onwards, which talk about how the evil empires of the world are going to be destroyed by God and the people of God are going to be exalted, honored, raised up, that kind of thing. Now, a lot of historians and biblical scholars have tried to make connections with these evil empires that are spoken about in these visions. They've tried to draw connections between the Persians, the Medes, the Greeks, the Romans. Some of them are pretty decent connections. Some of them are stretching it a little bit. But realistically, the main point if we don't worry about those specifics of which empires, is that the book of Daniel is about hope. It's offering hope to the people of God, both the current, for when the book was written, and future people of God. So what is this hope then within the entirety of the book of Daniel? Well, the hope is that there is both a pattern and a promise. And the pattern is that the rulers of, rulers of this world become beasts when they glorify themselves in their own power. So basically, when they think that they're the top dog, then they start to lose the qualities that make them like essentially human in a way. right? And that's a repeated pattern that all of these empires follow within the visions that are given within the book of Daniel. And then the promise is that God will rescue and redeem his people that he will throw down these powers and these empires and he will rise up. So that is the book of Daniel. That is the overarching story of hope and redemption that Daniel and the lions sit within. We good? That makes sense? Good, because I've got a pretty picture of lions here. I thought that was nice. So, Daniel, chapter 6. Rather than read the entire chapter, it's not that long, but I don't have that long to speak, so I'm just going to summarize it down for you. 
Basically, Daniel is appointed. Um, you've, got, you've got Darius the Mede. He's the big boss, king, right? Then you've got three administrators, and then you've got a bunch of satraps, sort of the governors of the various regions, 120 of them. Daniel is one of three, but he's so good at his job that Darius is like, dude, you're so good at your job, I'm going to put you above those administrators as well. So Darius, Daniel, administrators, satraps. How do we think that the administrators and the satraps felt about this Jewish bloke basically being second in charge of the Persian Empire? Wrong, right. Well done, good. They were not happy. So, basically, the enemies, we're going to call those administrators and satraps, we're going to call them the enemies, the bad guys, right? The bad guys try and find something that they can use about Daniel to get him into trouble with the king. So they go through all of his work life, everything that he's done within his role as an administrator, everything that he's done just as a person, and they try and uncover some dirt, right, to, to give to the king and go, no, no, this is a bad guy, exile him, kill him, something like that. They find nothing. They find nothing. So the only thing that they can find or think to do, really, is to manipulate him based upon his faith. Because they know that he's going to stay loyal and faithful to his God, so therefore... Let's use that against him. So what the enemies do is they go up to Darius the Mede, the king, and they say, um, Darius, for the next 30 days, we reckon it's a good idea if you don't let anybody worship another god or man except you. And Darius is like, yeah, that's a great idea. I love me. <laughs> and so he signs off on it. And then the enemies go up to Daniel's room where they know that he prays three times a day on his knees to God. And when he gets on his knees and starts praying, they burst in and go, ha ha, trapped you. And Darius is like, damn it, I liked Daniel. I really, really liked him. And so he tries to figure out a way to get Daniel out of this, but his word is law and cannot be changed. They say it like five times. And so basically he gets thrown into the lion's den, right? Spoiler alert, he survives. And again, I mean, I spoiled it before, but it's okay. So he survives. Um, God stops the mouths of the lions, and he spends the entire night in a den with these lions, and he's totally fine. The king runs out in the morning. He's like, Daniel, Daniel, are you alive? And he's like, yes. And the king's like, sweet. And then he grabs all the enemies. The king grabs all the enemies and throws them into the pit instead, and the lions devour them before their, bones hit the, their bodies hit the floor. So they were hungry lions. The king praises Daniel's God, doesn't say that he like accepts Daniel's God, but just that he recognizes the power of Daniel's God, and that is Daniel 6. Pretty sweet, pretty quick summary right there, okay? So let me jump the three pages that would have taken to read it out. <sighs> Let's pause. We are having three main ideas tonight, okay? The first idea that we're going to look at is the question of historical accuracy and faith. It's a really fun topic, trust me. The second thing we're going to look at is the idea of reflecting God's inner work in our lives. The third, the power of habit. I'm pretty sure that's the title of a pretty popular book. I haven't read it, and we're not talking about that, but anyway. So let's begin now um, with the idea of historical accuracy and faith. If you do not know me, I'm a history teacher, so I'm sorry, not sorry, about what I'm about to be sharing with you, okay? Um, Chris and Jen are both really aware of the passions that are in my life, and they knew what they were getting themselves into, so if you have any issue, blame them. Now, 
Like I said, my first point is about historical accuracy and faith. Quick points. Anybody know where that historical site is? I've just got on slide. I'll give you like a chocolate bar. All right, moving on. It's Persepolis. Now, if you are a, um, yeah, if you're a Christian, you're in a really, really unique position. Okay, a really unique position because your faith is based on a historical event. Is it? What's, what historical event is our faith based on? And the resurrection, more so, yeah. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's a historical event, is the foundation of our faith, right? I would agree. Paul says in one... I mean, I'm speaking, I know, so therefore I would agree with that. Um, 1 Corinthians is written by Paul to the church in Corinth, and Paul says... Let me check. If Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Like, the resurrection of Christ is the central cornerstone of the Christian faith, right? So, in real time, in real space, in Jerusalem, Jesus lived and died 2,000 years ago. We have this connection between history and faith. We cannot separate those. They are inextricably intertwined, right? I'm going to challenge us by making this statement about this dude, Darius the Mede, that I was referring to. That's why I kept saying his name heaps of times, because I wanted you to recognize that name. There is no historical evidence outside the Bible for the figure of Darius the Mede. Okay. Does that statement make sense? Cool. Let's roll with that. Now, I know that there are a bunch of other historical debates, issues, or controversies. Like, they say there's 120 satraps, Within Daniel 6, they say 120. Um, there weren't. There were 23 or 24, depending upon which inscription you use. But I'm not going to go through all of them. Just focus on King Darius the Mede, okay? Now, there are a bunch of potential explanations where Christian theologians have gone to this text, Daniel 6, and they've gone, well, the Bible says that Darius the King, Darius the Mede, sorry, has to exist, exist because it's said in the Bible. So where can we find evidence that fits the presupposition that Darius exists? Okay? Now, I'm not going to go into all of those because I, like, deep-dived on that for about four to five hours in preparation for this talk before I realized nobody cares and it wasn't that relevant for what we were talking about. That was really hard to highlight that paragraph and press delete. Um, if you want to talk to me about that, I'd really value that. Talk to me after the talk, okay? Because that would just help me feel good about this. But regardless, um, I've so lost where I'm up to. Okay, cool. Yes, Darius. Um, now, there are a whole bunch of ideas about who Darius the Mede might have been. Some people think it was this really cool fella sitting on a throne right there. Um, that's Darius the Great from about 100 years after when Darius the Mede is meant to exist. Plus, he was a Persian. He wasn't a Mede. And like, so they can't be the same person. So there are a bunch of different ideas about who Darius the Mede might have been. Some of them are actually kind of convincing. Like I read the list and I'm like, oh yeah, that might, that might be it. There's not much evidence, but that might be it. But there's nothing actually concrete. Okay, Ando, you've made this interesting, fancy historical point that Darius doesn't exist. So who cares? Well, if Darius does not exist then how can we trust that the rest of the historical narrative in Daniel actually happened? Right? Because Darius the Mede is like the context for the events of Daniel 6 particularly. Right? Now, this is really hard for me to say. 
Is that even the right question I should be asking? My dear friend, worship leader, budding theologian, kebab king and snooker shark, Matthew McKenzie, <laughs> he, um, he had some really wise words to say when we were talking about this. I basically went to him in this semi-existential crisis and was like, oh no, Darius doesn't exist, therefore my whole faith crumbles. And he kind of just slapped me out of it and gave me some really good words that I want to share with you now. Try to take the text on the terms that it is speaking. What is a text trying to actually communicate about God? That's a question we need to be asking. What's it trying to tell us? This is a little bit harder for aspects of books that are historical, like sections of Daniel, like chapter 6. Although, we still need to ask, to what extent am I right now being overly critical of a historical account? Because it's written in a time period where the concept of history is incredibly different from what we think of history today. So the book of Daniel, depending upon who you think wrote it, was written between 600 and maybe two or 300 BC. Sometime in that period, depending upon who you ask. So at the very least, it's 2,300 years old. At the very most, it's 2,600 years old. Why am I putting 21st century ideas of what historical accounts should be like onto a type of genre that doesn't have those same expectations back then? Okay, so that's the thing I, as a history nerd, need to be thinking about as we're doing it, so maybe that's valuable to you as well. To what extent also am I being overly critical of a specific aspect of a text that's actually, like Daniel 6 is not focusing on Darius the Mede. He is the foil. He is the setting and the context for an exploration of the relationship between Daniel and God. The idea of faithfulness to God, staying true to his beliefs despite external influences and pressures. That is the core of Daniel. So why, do I, why am I focusing on Darius the Mede when I really should be focusing on what is being explored and taught to us about a person's relationship with God through Daniel, the person of Daniel. Is that making sense? I hope so. People are nodding. I'll take it as a yes. So try to take the text on the terms that it is speaking. And that's going to be a really firm foundation for our faith as we move forward. It's not about nitpicking. I find that really hard. It's also not about fact-finding, cross-checking until the cows come home. It's about the simple, personal, and relatable questions. What do we learn about God, and how does it apply to our lives? Focus on those two questions whenever you're reading the Bible, and that is a firm, solid starting point for where we go from there. Cool? So, I want to read verses 3 and 4. Pretty quick, pretty easy. Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Consider the fact that Daniel is a Jewish man living in Babylon, a city worshipping many different gods, and he's actively, and that city and the people within it are actively trying to change the Jewish people away from their traditions, culture, and beliefs. So, so in the early chapters within Daniel, some of the things that they have to go through, right? Daniel is a really remarkable character, that there was no corruption, no negligence, nothing at all that they could find. 
It's his enemies saying this as well. It's like the bad guys who are trying to find fault. They can find nothing at all. What would your enemies say about you if they tried to dig up some dirt on you? I'm pretty sure they'd find some pretty bad dirt on me if they did it. Um, It's a pretty hard question to ask, though, isn't it? It's really important, though, because it's a great opportunity for reflection. So that leads us kind of to the question of how does your life reflect your belief in God in an outward, tangible fashion? In all of your work or school affairs, are you completely trustworthy and not negligent at all in any way? What does that actually mean? Well, if you're at work or school staff, if you're at work um, and you've got a deadline, do you do everything you reasonably can to make sure you meet that deadline with no excuses? When you get frustrated with a colleague, will you criticise them behind their back? Or will you try and go and make peace with them in a really constructive and loving way? When you have an assignment, do you complete it to the best of your ability? Or do you go and make some excuses about what prevented you from completing the task or handing it in on time? Like, the amount of times I have boys come up to me and go, oh, sir, I'm so sorry, I left my USB at home. And I'm like, cool, did you do it on Google Drive? Yes, great, log into my computer, get it. They don't have it. Or... They go, sir, I promise you, I swear, I emailed it to you. And I'm like, sweet, you can log into my email and we'll go to your sent emails and then you can just send forward it to me again. It's great. And they just can't. It happens way too often. But as an interesting point of reflection, are you someone that models punctuality, truthfulness, trustworthiness? And if you're to be really honest with yourself, how would you actually stack up if your enemies did have the opportunity to dig up some dirt? I know I'd have issues with reliability. Um, Sometimes I have a tendency to dive all in with work and life, and then I kind of drown a little bit and try and flail wildly and then just drop the ball on everything. Preach it, yeah. It's really interesting reading Daniel. I don't think from the little that we know about him that Daniel was some kind of like box checking nerd guy that just liked to be absolutely perfectionist in everything that he did because it was just innately who he was. I reckon it was actually his diligence and his approach, I reckon actually his diligence and approach to his work life is simply an overflow of his relationship with God. That his connection to God enriched him in such a way that these positive qualities that we read about are just, they're just who he is because of what he does, which is his relationship with God. As he came closer to God through prayer, his life just simply radiated the nature of God. And we're going to explore the power of prayer and habit in that third and final point. So, what are the main influences in your life that shape your actions, behaviour and character? To what extent are you influenced by family or workplace expectations, the culture of the friendship groups or the sports teams that you play for, the music you listen to, movies or shows that you watch? Do they actually do things like normalise particular perspectives? Do they marginalise women or minority groups? Do they present an unhealthy or ungodly view on relationships? One of the things I've done over the last couple of years is consider the 
how the music and the things that I watch, like nowadays, particularly on Netflix, how they are actually influencing me. I was thinking about it. I wonder if the obsession with Baby Yoda from The Mandalorian um, is less a comment on his like squishy cuteness, because he's like totally adorable, or if it's more of a reflection of the fact that The Mandalorian as a show itself is actually pretty wholesome. Hands up if you've seen The Mandalorian, or am I okay? I'm speaking to like one tenth of the crowd. <laughs> Damn it! I thought that people liked The Mandalorian more. Oh well, look up Baby Yoda. He's crazy cute. Now. Um, the Mandalorian, just so you know, it's, it's really high stakes, lots of drama, lots of tension, lots of action, but it's not like gratuitously violent or sexual in the ways of so, so many shows nowadays. And I wonder if that's some of the popularity of it. Because it's offering something which is like a wholesome alternative while still actually being really high quality as well. Just a thought. How do your lives reflect your belief in God? And what are the influences that are shaping you? Third and final point, the power of habit. How much is prayer an active, daily, and integral part of your life? It seemed to be a defining feature of Daniel's life. He prayed three times daily, and it was this very practice that enabled his enemies to trap him because they couldn't find anything. They're like, let's use his faith against him. We know he prays three times a day, no matter what, so let's trap him. And they did. They knew that he wouldn't give up praying no matter what. Now, If we think about it, Daniel probably prayed more. Charles Spurgeon says, this does not tell you how often he prayed, but how often he was in a posture of prayer, because Daniel 6 says that he was on his knees facing a window open towards Jerusalem when he prayed. So he's in a formal posture of prayer. Doubtless, he prayed 300 a day if necessary. His heart was always having commerce with the skies. I'd like to think that I wouldn't stop praying given the circumstances that Daniel was put in. I mean, I'd like to think that, right? But realistically, I'm fairly sure I'd be pretty influenced by the threat of lions. I might just go, oh, yeah, I mean, I still love you, God, but let's just chill for a few days. I don't know. So what was it that led to Daniel's conviction and his resolve to not stop praying? What led to his willingness, knowing the consequences of his actions, to continue to place himself in a position, like a physical, literal position of humility, respect, and reverence to God, which is what bowing down in prayer towards our God is? I think it's because prayer had become a habit in his life, and a habit that led to deeper and closer commune with his God, and through that commune, his faith is strengthened. So he knows that no matter what, his God is with him. Because faith is not a blind hope. It's actually a really bold choice. It's not wishing for the best in a situation that you don't really understand or sending thoughts and prayers. It's not a call to believe in something you can't see or don't understand. It's not a careless leap into the dark. It's reasoned, it is considered, it is intentional thought on the promises of God. Faith has been described as positive certainty expressed in action. And authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it is believing God. Taking God at his word, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost, because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do what he says. 
Daniel's prayer habits had developed deep roots within him, roots that drew life and nourishment from his commune and relationship with God and led to his obedience to pray despite the circumstances. But there's always a but. We aren't all Daniel or Daniela, are we? I want to share some of the fears that I have just in a general sense because I have this hope that some of you may well be able to identify and to be encouraged by them. And these are fears relating to the concept of faith. At times, I'm simply afraid. I'm afraid that I'm not good enough to be a Christian despite the fact that I know it shouldn't actually matter and it's why Jesus died. I'm afraid that I'm not obedient enough to God's wishes, that I focus too much on what I want rather than what he wants for my life. At times, I'm really afraid I don't pray enough, that like, I'm not meeting these standards, you know? Some of you get it. On really, really bad days, I think about the fact that one day all of this and all of this will simply end and I'm terrified of what comes next. And sometimes I just genuinely think I'm broken because I'm, I'm not Daniel. A faith that struggles... Let me hold on that. I want to show you this picture. Some of you may well have seen this before. Um, Japanese culture has this artistic style or movement which is called kintsugi, which is the repair of broken objects using powdered gold lacquer. It accepts that cracks or damage, damages are a part of the history, nature, and beauty of the object. A faith that struggles with doubts is a faith that can be mended by knowing more of the object of our faith. The faith that struggles grows stronger. When our understanding of God and his son Jesus grows, he will fill and repair our cracks and damage, transforming us into objects of beauty and purpose. Well then, how does our faith grow? How do we conquer those fears that I spoke to before? Well, it's pretty simple, supposedly. We do it by immersing ourselves in the faith-building Word of God and by praying regularly to our God. Two things. Pretty simple. I wanted to say that reading the Bible and praying, like they're not revolutionary concepts. I've just said they're simple. And I wanted to say that they're not revolutionary, but I simply can't because that would be lying. I think that reading the Bible and praying are incredibly revolutionary. They're revolutionary in power, both for ourselves, individually, personally, like internally, but also externally for the communities, the friendship groups, the relationships that we are a part of. I think that there is a real transformation that happens in a person and the people that they interact with and the communities that are a part of, the more and more that we come closer to our God and all that he does and transforms within us. Within us. And I can't go into detail with that because we don't have time, but I'm like, I fundamentally believe that. That authentic Christian faith brings transformation in the individual and in the community that they're a part of. I'm going to bring the plane into land right now as we finish up. 
Daniel is an example of a person whose relationship with God so transformed his life that no fault at all could be found in all that he did. His life was defined by prayer and intimacy with God, which led to this unwavering obedience that he had, stepping literally in front of those lines. But I'm not Daniel. Maybe we're not all Daniels right now, yet. And you know what? Um, He probably wasn't like a capital D Daniel to begin with either. He was probably like Dan, Danny, sunny old boy, mate, or I don't know, something. No, he wasn't mate, he wasn't Australian. But he wasn't born Daniel, the guy who prays a lot. He was just a kid. And his prayer life and his dedication, his obedience to God is something that was developed and cultivated, nurtured and prioritized within his life over many years until it came to the point where we read about it within the book of Daniel. He was a person that probably had just as many cracks as many many of us do. But he didn't let that hold him back, did he? So maybe tonight our response to Daniel and his encounter with the lions isn't to focus on the lions as such, isn't to focus on the awe-inspiring events, although they're definitely important, and that definitely is why that story is told within Sunday school, plus it has lions and they're cool to colour in. Maybe the response that we could have is to think of ourselves not having to right now be capital D Daniels. We don't have to be perfect. Maybe we don't need to be capital M Matt's, capital L Laura's, but we just recognise that many of us do have those flaws, cracks, might be just that little bit kind of broken, but that's okay because there's a beauty within that imperfection. Our connection with God combined with persistence in our faith through prayer and the Bible is transformationally powerful. Let's finish with that. So team, what I'm going to do now, can we all stand? Now, um, I might give some context behind this. Sam, do you want to come up and thingy thing? Um, The way that we like to do the time just after a talk, for those of you who may not know, is we like to do this thing called ministry time, which is like where we pray for each other, right? So I've asked all of us to stand because sitting in a seat is really comfortable and sometimes to actively participate in something, it can be a good idea to stand. You don't have to, but it can help. And now in a moment, I'm just going to pray And I'm just going to ask God and be like, what do you want to pray with us about? What do you want to be doing here? And then we're going to embrace the wonderful, awkward silence that comes after that. And then I might say a few things, and if people want prayer, we do. And if not, you can go and have supper. We keen? All right, I'm going to pray, and it will be awkward, and it will be wonderful. God, thank you so much for who you are. I should start with that. As we come before you now, Father God, we come before you recognizing that many of us may want to be capital D Daniels, Daniels, and we're just, maybe some of us are further along that path than others. Wherever we're at, Father God, we come to you right now and we just breathe deep, and we breathe out and we just relax and rest in your presence. Holy Spirit, speak to us.